Hey, everybody. Here's part two of the interview that we did with John Baer. Hope you enjoy this, and thanks so much for listening. So let, let's talk a little bit more about origin and scripture, yeah. um, because this is a place where I think that origin does tend to be misunderstood or mischaracterized or stereotyped. So he's well known um, as an interpreter of scripture, as we know, um, and he's often obviously well known for uh, what's called the allegorical method or is often termed as allegory. So for some, this this approach is suspect or just a straight up in, invalid way of reading scripture. For others, it's illuminating and enlivening. And for others, it's wacky enough to be marveled at or be amused by for a little while, write an article about it and sort of poke at it. And, but then ultimately dismiss it as just not a very good way of engaging with scripture. So would you explain Origen's approach to the interpretation of scripture and perhaps correct any sort of misconceptions about his method? Okay. Um, so characterized as an allegorical reading of scripture, as that was typically done uh, through the last couple of centuries, really until de Lubeck. De Lubeck is the first one who really appreciated and knew what Origen was doing, and then that's become a subject of much reflection thereafter. It is always, you know, Origen is this wild, platonic, Gnostic figure from Alexandria who does wacky interpretation of scripture, and he calls it allegory, um, and it's clearly other than what the plain sense means. Okay? And that's becoming, that was exacerbated in the course of the 20th century because we've become conditioned, so conditioned now to thinking that scripture is what historical criticism tells us it is. It's an absolutely fascinating passage. Do you, do you know um, Paul Hans, Richard Hansen's book, The yes. Search for the Christian Doctrine of God? 900 pages by a really good patristic scholar. Yeah, he, you know, he's representing the best of patristic scholarship at the end of it, uh, in, in that time. At the end of 900 pages, he said, you know, the, the result of the fourth century is that they finally got an answer to their search for the Christian doctrine of God. Um, but they were hopeless readers of scripture. They were not able to understand scripture. He says, the very reverence with which they held scripture, in which they held scripture, uh, 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 blocked their understanding of it. And by their understanding of it, he meant the atomic, what he called the atomic reading of scripture, as if each verse of scripture could give independent information in isolation from the historical context of the author who wrote it. Yeah? And in this they are simply wrong, but then he adds, even if they're following a practice which goes back to the apostles and to Jewish rabbinic scholarship. So everybody's doing it from the apostles onwards, and the rabbis were doing this, and everybody's doing this, but it's simply wrong. And the theology that they developed in this mode of exegesis it's great, we've now got our Trinitarian theology, but the exegesis is wrong. It's a, it's a, it's a classic, I wish I had it here to actually read it. It's a, it's a classic passage stating the problem of the case as you could possibly want. Because the problem of the case really is, you know, we've got all this theological reflection in the early church, which is being done in a particular exegetical, liturgical, and ascetic dimension. We've extracted that theological reflection, and we've combined it with a different way of reading scripture, and it doesn't fit. It actually doesn't fit, and that's our modern problem. Okay, so it's in the context of this 20th century uh, of, of modern biblical scholarship doing what they're doing, especially in the early mid 20th century, that they would look on patristic exegesis as something weird and wacky, yeah, and, and not as something intrinsic to the theological reflection itself. It's a very mode in which they're theologizing. 
you know, it's not as if Basil's developing a Trinitarian theology and it's something separate from his reading of scripture. Obviously not, okay? Um, and that presupposition even goes for kind of standard 20th century textbooks on theology, like Jane D. Kelly, early Christian theology. You've got all this, you know, pre-Nicene Christology, post-Nicene Christology, Nicene Trinitarian theology, and then the last chapter is, you know, exegesis, as if it's something separable, yeah? And it, even with, with Richard Hansen, it's still a presupposition that's going on there, okay? Which none of them would none have. Of, none of them would have done, none of them okay? Would have done that. So, um, in case your audience hasn't realized it, I like to be provocative, <laughs> and I would strongly say that unless you're reading scripture allegorically, you're not reading it as scripture. Just to be really provocative, okay? <laughs> and that this allegorical reading of scripture is intrinsic to the proclamation of the gospel. Straightforwardly, yeah? And the, 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 the classic example of that would be Paul, okay? He was trained. You know, we spend all our life trying to figure out how a first century Jew might have read scripture. Well, he was, period, yeah? He was trained under Rabbi Gamaliel. He knew the scripture inside and out. He knew all the different things like that. Did his reading of scripture lead him to Christ? So I, I, I know that the audience <laughs> on the other side of this microphone is not going to respond, but you can respond. <laughs> yeah. I tend to talk rhetorically like that. Did it, did it, lead, him, did it lead him to Christ? No, it didn't. No. It led him to persecute the church. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, he then encounters Christ on the road to Damascus. He's blinded. He regains his sight and all the other things one might want to say. Um, and then he reads scripture differently. And he says he reads it differently. He says the veil has been lifted. It's as simple as that. The veil has been lifted. So that means he's not reading it the same way he was reading it before. It's absolutely as simple as that. He's not reading it the same way he was reading it before, and that means it's an allegorical reading. Yeah? His reading, the text hasn't changed. His reading has changed. You get exactly the same image on the, on the road to Emmaus. You know, the disciples have been following Christ. They ran away at the crucifixion. They don't understand the empty tomb. The risen Christ turns up, and they say, who are you? Yeah, how long's it been? What, three days, seven days since they last saw him? Who are you? You're a stranger. Haven't you heard what's been going on? And all that kind of thing. You know, we were following this guy called Jesus. We thought he was going to save us, but when he got himself killed, the tomb's empty, and we've got no idea what's happening. Yeah? It's, it's really comedic when you read it through like that. Um, and then he opens the scripture to show, it's not that they've never opened the book before, they knew the books, but he opens the scripture to show how Moses and all the prophets spoke about how he had to suffer to enter into his glory, the hearts start to burn, they recognize when they're breaking the bread, and so on and so on, okay? So it's intrinsic to the very pro proclamation of the gospel to, um, to, uh, to read the scriptures allegorically. Okay. Now, a lot of stuff in the 20th century tried to differentiate between allegory and typology and a whole, you know, allegory is bad, typology is good, and all that kind yeah. of thing. Well, no, Francis Young points out that the word typology is not used until the 17th century or something. It's a romantic invention and so on, yeah? But actually, I'd prefer to, rather, even rather than the word um, allegorical, I'd prefer to use the word apocalyptic. Mm. It's an apocalyptic reading an of script, an unveiling. Yep. Apocalyptic in that sense of unveiling, okay? Mm -hmm. It's an unveiling. Um, uh, whether you want to call it algorithm, you want to call it typology, there are any number of different ways in which you can then read the text and get meaning from it and see how Christ is being spoken through prophecy, through type, type, through whatever. I mean, all these different things. But they're all under the general category of unveiling. 
Now, what's really, sorry, I'm going to carry on. What's, what's really interesting with this question of veiling and unveiling is that when the veil is lifted, it's not that you see something different. Yeah, which is what which is what the biblical scholars are fearful of. You know, you, you, you dispense with the text and you go off and say it means something else. No, wild speculation. Wild speculation. No, it, it is simply it's unveiled, um, but that means that the veil is the veil is essential to the unveiling. It can't be unveiled unless it's veiled. Yeah, and in fact, this veiling and unveiling is a fundamental dynamic of all communication. For me to communicate with you. You, you. I've got to put my thought into words. Yeah? But if you stay with the words, you don't get what I'm saying. Right. Yeah? So, you know, you've got the words on the page, and it means, you know, T-H-E, the, W-O-R-D-S, O-N-P-A-G-E. Yeah? And so the, the initial starting point is to look at the letters and see what those letters are. And once you've recognized the letters, you can then break out what, 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 you know, because there's no spaces in the manuscripts, what are the different words, and then how these words fit together. And in fact, only once you get to the end do you know what the words mean, yeah? With a basic hermeneutical circle. The example I always give my students is a statement, you know, the plant. When I say the plant, what are you thinking of? A plant. A pl meaning? Like a, like a, a green okay. potted plant. It's swarming. What's your, word, what's your reference to the word plant now? Uh, potentially a factory. A factory yeah. with bees. Yes. Back to the back, yeah. So the, <laughs> the meaning of the word plant mm -hmm. is not given until you get to the right. end, okay? So you've got to start with the letters, you've got to figure out what the words are, you've got to see how the grammar works, you've got to do all this basic discipline of reading, and then you can get the meaning of the sentence and the meaning of each word. And once you get the meaning, in a very real sense, you stop looking at the letters. Yeah? Yeah. The, 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 mean, the letters so become transparent to the meaning. Move beyond the letter? As Either way, but, but yeah. there's no way of getting to the meaning apart from through the letters. But if you stay with the letters, you're not getting the meaning. Well, and that's... Yeah? And that's so so uh, veiling and unveiling, the two belong together. You can't have one without the other. And that's fundamental to all communication. Right. Okay? It's just a basic dynamic communication. Communication is veiling and then unveiling in the give and take of understanding. So in that sense... You ab when you're reading scripture, you absolutely have to use all the historical disciplines because the very letters on the pages spell words which only have meaning in a context 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, whenever it might be. Just to get the, range, the semantic range of the meanings, you've got to have access to all the historical disciplines. So it's absolutely got a valuable place in like that. But that's not yet theological reflection. And then it's not as if theological reflection is, okay, we know what the words are, let's talk about something else. Right. That's a caricature of allegory, which is nonsense. Mm -hmm. But it is it's in this dynamic of veiling and unveiling that, the, that Christ is revealed. And in fact, I'm beginning to think, really, that the category of veiling and unveiling, communication, is a, the fundamental category of all theology. Mm. Yeah? So... Um, scripture is unveiled in the light of the Passion. And we thought we knew its meaning, but it turns out to be something else. Christ is unveiled in and through the Passion. We thought we knew who he was, this son of the carpenter from Nazareth and so on and so on, who does strange things, but we can't really figure it out. But now we know, in fact, he's the eternal word of God. Yeah? So veiling and unveiling through the Passion. And I say the veiling and unveiling of who Christ is is actually coextensive with the veiling and unveiling of Scripture. He's the word of God. We know him through the opening of the scripture. Likewise, 
Paul took, the veil that Paul talks about is also a veil that lies over my mind. Right. Yeah? And so we've got to work at unveiling ourselves. So before I encountered Christ, I thought of myself as being a child of my parents. Yeah? But now, encountering Christ, I realize, no, in fact, I'm a son of God. Yeah? Veiling and unveiling. And then liturgy is totally veiling. It's all veiling and unveiling. Yeah? You know, ritually, artistically, it's, it's all veiling and unveiling, culminating in the Eucharistic offering, which is, again, veiling and unveiling. It's the very body and blood of Christ, but it's veiled as bread and wine. And it's unveiled when we consume it so that we become the body of Christ, which is why he disappears when they recognize him on the road to Emmaus. That's awesome. All right, we need a little bit of a, like, comic relief from this nerd fest we got going on. So we're going to do our speed round. So uh, long-time listeners of OnScript love this because uh, he does not know these questions ahead of time. And he gets about 10 seconds. So no, these are quick responses. Uh, You got 10 seconds apiece, just whatever comes to your mind. What is the weirdest thing you've ever eaten? Oh, eyeballs. What kind of hotballs? <laughs> Any, like yep. Any particular yeah. kind of eyeballs? I, I was in Greece for a year, in, when I was 21 or something like that, back in the early 80s, late, mid-80s. Um, and I was with the Greek family for Easter. And the traditional Greek Easter thing to break the fast is sheep's or lamb's head soup. And being, you, know, you, you get the lamb's head, you boil it for God knows how many hours... Um, lemon juice, egg, all sorts of stuff goes into it. And because I was a guest, they gave me the plate with the eyeballs in it. So, you know, you've got this plate with bits of brain and stuff and sewing like that. And eyeballs bobbing up and down, looking at me as I was doing it. <laughs> Are you a morning or a night person? Oh, night, definitely. Oh. No, no doubt uh, about it. Morning I, I, person. No, 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 no. Night, nights are endless. Mornings, when, whatever time you start in the morning, you know that by a certain point of time, you've got to do something else. Yeah. I, yeah. Okay. You know, okay. by 10 o'clock I've got to finish, or whatever it might, might be. <laughs> Nights are open. So, you're obviously Orthodox. So, is there anything you secretly admire about Protestantism? <laughs> that, that's going to pass 10 seconds altogether. <laughs> um, oh. Uh, it, or maybe not so secret. No, no, no. <laughs> So, so the reason why I'm stumbling on this is because I don't really think like that. Yeah. My, my reading is all over the place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's not that I just read Orthodox people and whatever else. I read extensively all over the place, and I really don't think about what is the confessional background of the particular writer who's doing it. Mm-hmm. So I've you know, had a great time reading Karl Barth. I've had a great time reading a bunch of other different people like that, um, lots of biblical scholars and so on, but I just, I'm just not thinking in those categories. Likewise... I would never say of my work that it's orthodox. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't use that category in, in talking. What, you know, I'm trying to give a good reading of Origin or a good reading of Irenaeus or, most recently, a good reading of John. To say it's an orthodox reading of John, in my opinion, actually cheapens it. Yeah. It's either a good reading or it's not. Right. Nice. So what is the most, in your mind, what is the most significant study in patristics in the last 50 years? 50, not 500, 50. Or 5,000. <laughs> 2,000. <laughs> 50 years. And it could be bad significant. I, 
I've got no idea. <laughs> really, I've got no idea for that one. <laughs> so There's plenty of stuff that you know has been really stimulating and enlightening and moved the direction. And I think it's especially material which has moved the direction in terms of understanding the fathers, not as anticipating mm. later doctrinal systems, but figures in their own right, um, and seeing how theology and scriptural exegesis go together in their work. For me, that's mm. been the most interesting thing. So a bunch of people like, for me, Francis Young was really crucial oh, yeah. in all of that. Yeah, yeah? But other yeah. people as well. What is your favorite magical or mythological animal? Phoenix. Ooh, good one. There we go. <laughs> what is one idea in patristic studies that you think needs to die? Um, our own presuppositions. Hmm. I like it. Yeah. We'll just keep it there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, oh, and one last one. In the last 50 years of theology, what is the most off-the-wall theory you've heard advanced by theologians? Uh, gosh, I, I'm not going to answer that one. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get myself in so much trouble if I do. <laughs> well, that's why we ask it. But you, but you but can they're, they're, they're just too many with respond. regard to that. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, as we move into uh, sort of wrapping up our conversation, uh, just ask a couple of sort of larger questions here. Um, and I want to address theological method a little mm. bit. What can modern theologians learn from Origen about doing, writing, theology, or theologizing, as it were? Okay, um, uh, I'm not going to answer it with regard to Origen, but I'm going to answer it with regard to early figures more generally. Sure, sure, sure. Okay. Um, you know, there's, there was a great return to the fathers in the mid-20th century, the Sorsamon, the neopatristic synthesis, and all the rest of it. And the image which um, I think Daniello uses it, then first in Balthazar, then Florovsky and other people, is to talk about a synthesis. Yeah, they talk about a neopatristic synthesis. And essentially what they mean by that is, we know what theology is. You know, of course theology is constituted by certain doctrines. Trinitarian theology, Christology, Mariology, ecclesiology, whatever, whatever it might be. And then we read the fathers looking for these things. Yeah? Um, and then, of course, you know, we go to the Cappadocians for Trinitarian theology. We go to Cyril for Christology. As if the Cappadocians thought they were doing Trinitarian theology. And as if Cyril woke up and said, okay, they've done Trinity, let's move on to Christology. Yeah. You know, obviously they weren't doing that. The only reason why we think the 4th century was a Trinitarian debate and the 5th century Christological debate is because our handbooks of dogmatic theology go from Trinity to Christology. Yeah? They, weren't, they didn't want thinking in that way. So... Um, the way of doing it in the 20th century was in terms of this synthesis. We know what theology is. We're going to pick and choose from the different elements here, synthesize it all, and then lo and behold, all the fathers are teaching the same thing, and it's what we already knew. Rather circular. Okay? That's why I didn't want to mention any names earlier, but there we go. Um, rather than the idea of synthesis, I'm much, much more attracted by the idea of symphony. Okay? And the, the, the inter interesting thing about symphony is that it's polyphonous. Yeah, and it's to use fancy technical terms, it's diachronically and synchronically polyphonous, meaning at any given time you've got different voices. Yeah, you know, so Gregor of Nyssa is not Basil, different voices. Irenaeus is not Maximus, different voices at different times and different things. So rather than use, going to the fathers to look for material to substantiate what we think we already know, no, we go to the fathers, early church writers, to 
um, see expressions of the faith at particular historical junctures. How Irenaeus gave expression to his faith, how Origen did, how whoever did, all the way through like that. Yeah? And if one can do that, um, I think the, the point of doing that is not to simply store away quotations for later use, but so that we become harmonized to the symphony of theology, so that we can sing our part today, however different it might be than what went before. It'd be part of the same symphony. Yeah? If you want to take part in a symphony, you've got to go and rehearse the score of the earlier movement. Yeah? And only then can you take your part. And your part is not the repetition of the early movement but you're now harmonized into that, yeah? So treating each father as dis a distinct witness in their historical context with their strength, their weak points, whatever it might be, but hearing them as distinct um, witnesses in all of that, um, and then being harmonized into the symphony of, of, the, the, of, of theology. But of course, then the trick is, how do you hear it as a symphony and not a cacophony? Yeah? yeah? Well, you do that partly by disciplined historical study, paying attention to what they're doing, how they're doing it, what their hypothesis is, and all the rest of it. And in fact, what I've found is that they are reflecting upon the crucified and risen Lord, who is known through the opening of the scripture, who shows us what God is, who shows us what human beings is, and who shows us how the world is oriented in such a way that God's work can be completed at the end. Thank you for that. So what strikes me, going back to your translation for just a moment, what strikes me about your translation um, is uh, you talked about how you're not making, you're not translating to make things easy, but it is accessible. I think part of it has to do with the layout. Yeah, and all that kind well, of compared it's to the easy. double columns of the Anthropocene oh, Fathers, yeah. which is. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, part of the issue in a lot of ways with reading early Christian texts is a lot of just sometimes yeah. layout, even. Yes. Um, actually, but actually the, 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 the biggest thing with or hesitation that people have in reading ancient texts is they think we're never going to be able to understand it. We're never going to be able to understand it. Yeah. It's, and it's, so we don't even try. It's difficult. And we, 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 we've read about. Origin or Athanasius or whoever else it might be. We've heard about him. We've heard how difficult a writer he is. And we just stay with, you know, secondhand reports and all of these and things. And we think it's going to fly over our heads. And so, yeah. and we do this a lot, right? And, yeah. and not just with the early church fathers. I think about um, even just what, like, modern day classics. Yeah. Like, we're afraid to read classics of literature because we think we can't understand them. Or we think it's going to fly over our head. They obviously use words that I won't understand. But what really struck me as I was reading through your translation of On First Principles is how I felt like I got to know Origen better. It just I noticed his casual asides, I noticed his analogies that he used, his, and what really struck me sort of in the heart was, and it always has, is his just zealous yeah. love of the gospel. Yeah. So is this a book? you think all Christians should read. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. However, I would, the, the point of that symphony image is, you know, it's, it's ongoing, and so really you should start earlier. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no point in reading On First Principles if you've never read the scriptures. Okay? Now, presuming you've read the scriptures and want to know more, well, you should also read Ignatius. Yeah, you know, the, one of the first writers outside after Paul, after, after the apostles and so on. Because... Well, by the time Origen's writing, we're now talking about a century and a half later than that, and so he's already building upon the themes that they've been working in through and so on. So you do need to read it chronologically to get a sense of how it's progressing and developing and playing upon itself and so on. Yeah, I would def definitely do that. 
um, you don't have to read everything, okay, but certainly Ignatius. I would really strongly recommend reading Irenaeus. I think he's absolutely brilliant. But if you're going to read him, don't start with book one and book two of Against the Heresy. Start no. with book three. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because if you start with book one, you're just going to get completely lost. Yeah? <laughs> all the reporting about the different Gnostic systems and well, all that kind of stuff. No. But book three, four, and five are actually, again, really simple. Or they will be when my new translation comes out in maybe ten. <laughs> Just a quick plug there, but but don't 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 get up already. It's going to be another ten years or so. Yeah, um, yeah, and and then follow through like that. Then after Origen on first principles, um, you know, commentary on John, any of his commentaries or homilies, they're just so beautiful. And then Athanasius on the Incarnation, absolutely classic text and really simple. When he asks questions, when I talk to my students about. Um, on the incarnation, I, I always say he asks the questions that you think you shouldn't, you don't need to ask. Yeah. Um, things like, well, why didn't Jesus just show up? Yeah. Like yes. when he was thirty years old and be like, hey guys, and then like yeah. have a three-year ministry. And why, why yeah. didn't he die of a disease? Yeah. Uh, uh, like, right. mm. <laughs> although, although um, he goes through all those kind of questions, um, Richard Hansen in his work, in his comments on, on Athanasius, he says, Athanasius on the incarnation is so overshadowed by the dominant theme of incarnation, he can't explain why Christ had to die. Whereas in fact, the whole book is about why Christ died. <laughs> okay? it, shows, it shows Hansen's presupposition of what incarnation means. And then Hansen goes on to say, all he can offer is a series of puerile reasons, referring to those chapters. But what he, what he then omitted is that after doing all of these reasons, you know, if he died in a corner, who would have known about him, all that kind of thing, uh, uh, Athanasius then says, well, all of that's comments for outsiders. Mm. In other words, he's been playing with his audience. You want to ask these kind of questions, well, let me titillate you for a little bit and get you encouraged. And then, by the way, all of this is for outsiders. If anybody really wants to know why he died on the cross, it's because in no other way could heaven and earth be joined, in no other way could the, 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 the middle level between be purged of all the demons and all the other. And actually the, the most important one, of course, is that in no other way would he become a curse for us, apart from by dying on the cross. So it gives a whole bunch of scriptural reasons there, having played with the audience. Um, but that goes to a point I'd want to make with regard to reading a patristic text. You have to read it in its entirety. And you have to pay attention to things like that, where he says, what I've just said is for this group of people, now let me do whatever. And also, quite often, I would strongly recommend reading them aloud. Yes. Yeah, they're orations. Especially, I think um, Gregory the Theologian. Yeah. His theological orations, they're meant to be read aloud. He's bantering back and forwards with the audience. You've got to hear the dynamic of all of those. You know, his, his uh, Gregory Nazianzus is... Um uh, one on the poor, lo for the love of the poor, I can't remember the title exactly. Uh, I've assigned that in the past with uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from Birmingham jail. Right. And just the sort of sense, of, to get them the sense of oratory, yeah. that's a part yes. of this, and even though that was a letter, just yeah. this sort of sense there, and, and I said, I think, I think they're friends. I think they'd right. be friends. Yeah. And, and, and I think that, that that tends to be missing when we have these presumptions that so we bring to the text. So what we do is we presume we know what theology is. We, we presume that when we're reading these texts, they are a collection of dogmatic statements which could be taken out of order and just you know, a bit from here and a bit from here and build up a system with it. No, these are master rhetoricians. These are master orators. They're giving you, you know, a great, uh, skillfully arranged oration. Hear it in its wholeness. 
Yeah, it's so much more fun when you do that. Oh, it so is so much, much more fun. fun. So I'll ask this last uh, question. Um, it's, this time has gone so fast. <laughs> um, I was thinking about just reading texts in their entirety and just how our attention being turned to these texts. And, you know, of course, with some of the historical, like, understanding and a little bit of context so that we understand what we're reading. Um, what has been a text that, or, or, or a particular author, that when you've read them, you've just really sort of experienced camaraderie and sort of an, it's sort of a, I'm joining kind of with that symphony yeah. and just had that sort of sense. Cause for me, Symphon- that was, um, there's been a few texts that have done that origins commentary in the song of songs changed the way that I read the patristic texts in general and also how I engage with scripture. But specifically for me, it was Gregory of Nyssa's um, on the soul and the resurrection. Um, and reading that really just became, I felt like, he and Macarena became friends of mine. Oh yeah. And, and I spent so much, I mean, I read it out loud. It's a dialogue. It made more sense to do it that way. And it just felt so alive to me. And I felt connected to the tradition in a way that I didn't really quite think was possible. And I sort of experienced God like with them as I was reading the text. Mm -hmm. So, You've had oh, so I mean, for me, it started with reading Irenaeus. He was really my first major theologian. I've been working on him for some 30 years now, and I've got another 10 years before I even think I'll begin to understand what he's doing. And I'll do that by doing translation edition. But he was such a presence. I was married when I got married in Oxford when I was doing my doctoral thesis. My wife would um, lay, a, lay a plate, take a dinner for him. Yeah, he was such a presence in our house. Yeah. Um, a bit of an Elijah yeah. situation. Yes. <laughs> then, then the figures after that, I mean, for me, it really would be Origen, uh, Irenaeus, Origen, Gregory of Nyssa, uh, Dionysius Maximus. And increasingly, I'm finding Eriugena. Ooh. Yeah, I think Eugenia really is a continuation of that theological trajectory. Yeah. yeah. Even mm. more so, I think, than John of Damascus. Mm. So, but that's for future work. Well, this but those is, would be the figures I'm most at home with. That's great. Well, this has been absolutely marvelous. Thank you for talking with me today. This is your host, Amy Brown-Hughes, along with Matt Lynch at OnScript. We've been enjoying a conversation with the Reverend Dr. John Baer here in the Shota House Theological Seminary. You can find a link to this, this translation we've been talking about and his other books at OnScript.study. Thank you for joining us today, friends. Thank you. Go ahead. All right, question. Yeah, if you could just repeat the question mm-hmm. My question is uh, somewhat broad. I'd like to be interested in knowing what your thoughts about Eusebius of Caesarea are. Not his historical, not your thoughts about his historical work so much, but his his place. You talked about Athanasius, you talked about how he writes in his history about yeah. origin, but he's also an admirer of origin. Absolutely. His works on theophany, the divine manifestation. So like, do you have any thoughts about him? Well, let me uh, repeat the question. So the question was generally what are, what are thoughts about Eusebius and sort of his place, not so much the church history, but... So, so most of the work I've done with Eusebius has been on the church history, and I've been fascinated by the way he presents earlier controversies, especially the Paschal controversy and then Demetrius and Origen and, and so on, yeah? Um, because it's clearly it's not a straightforward presentation of either, that things going on with it. 
um, <coughs> clearly he loved Origen, um, saw himself as a success of Origen, the library in Caesarea, his work with Pamphilus, their defense of Origen against, you know, a whole lot of stuff, really interesting stuff going on with that. As for um, Eusebius's own theological work, like the Theophany and, and other stuff like that, although I've read it and taught it, I've never really got my teeth into it. I've just never found it grabbing. Yeah. Thank you so much. For your um, theological method, you suggest uh, rehearsing the early parts, you know, reading the, these individual voices as distinct witnesses through disciplined historical study, and then hoping to harmonize from that. Um, how would your method of reading scripture differ from that? Oh, absolutely. So, uh, so maybe repeat the yeah, question. So, so the question, uh, uh, essentially, the question was: What's the difference between reading a patristic text and reading a scriptural text? Yeah, it's essentially the gist of it. Yeah, so you can read scriptural texts as historical texts. Obviously, you can. Obviously, they're written at different epochs, different times, different places, different contexts, whatever else it might be. And in case of the oh, what we now call the Old Testament scriptural texts, they've gone through a whole history of redaction and whatever. I mean, a whole bunch of different things. And you can spend your lifetime doing that. And I'm really grateful that people have because it helps us understand every, the words on the page so much more clearly. Yeah? However, um, the key for reading scripture as scripture is the crucified and risen Lord. Yeah? So Irenaeus, for instance, says, uh, Christ is a treasure hidden in the scriptures, which could not be understood until the time came for the fulfillment of the prophecy. Okay? Uh, so for those who read it without that, he says, the scriptures are nothing but myth. We can say, even if historically true, they're nothing but myth, describing the wanderings of people around you know, the ancient Near East and destruction of the temples and whatever else. You've got, you've got a whole bunch of texts like that. Yeah? What makes it scripture is the passion of Christ. He says he's planted in the scripture but brought to light by the cross. Okay? And that's really what we, we, I mentioned with regard to Paul. He's reading scripture one way, he's now reading it another way. Yeah? On the road to Emmaus, the books are now open. It's not that they never read it before. It's that he's now showing them how it speaks about him. So James Kugel, a Jewish scholar, points out that there are four presuppositions for reading scripture as scripture in the ancient world. And this goes for Jews as much as for Christians. Four presuppositions for reading scripture as scripture. The first is it's cryptic. It's not saying what you think it says. If it says what it, what it, if it means what it says on the surface, well, what's the big deal? Yeah? Why did the veil need to be lifted? Why did the book need to be opened? It's cryptic. The second point is, um, it's harmonious. When Christ opens a book, what does he show on the road to Emmaus? He shows how Moses and, and the prophets all spoke about how he had to suffer to enter into his glory. It's all about him. Yeah? The one who opens the book, well, lo and behold, it talks about him. Yeah? The third point is that it's contemporary. Moses wrote of me, not Moses wrote of things that happened 10,000 years ago. Yeah? Cryptic, uh, harmonious, contemporary. And then the third point, and Kugel argues that this third point is derivative from the first three points, in fact, we're doing Origin this afternoon, and Origin made exactly that point. It's inspired, 
but their inspiration depends upon those first three points. So it's a very different understanding of what inspiration is than what we tend to do today. We tend to think of scripture primarily in historical key and inspiration in a historical key. God inspired Moses way back when, then he inspired Isaiah, and so on and so on and so on, yeah? That's how we tend to think of inspiration. Um, and then we might get into the question of, you know, did Isaiah understand what he was writing, or was it automatic pilot, or that kind of question. Well, I've got no idea what was in Isaiah's mind when he was writing. Nor do you. Yeah? Nor does anybody. But I know for a fact that nobody was reading Isaiah as speaking about a crucified Messiah born of a virgin until after the event. Fact. Yeah? You know, people weren't hanging around, oh, waiting, so when's the one from a virgin going to be born and crucified? Now, after the event, they know. Which means you cannot speak about the inspiration of Isaiah until Christ opens a book to show how Isaiah spoke about him. Yeah? Sim but that simultaneously means that, that Christ, Christ inspires Isaiah to speak about himself in the present, and he shows that to the inspired reader. So the act of inspiration is Christ himself showing how the book is inspired to speak about him to the, to the reader who's inspired in the same act. Yeah, so inspiration is one, it's a hermeneutical act. Yeah, it's a hermeneutical act which turns upon Christ himself. As a consequence of the fact that the book was sealed, it's now opened and it speaks about him. That's how we talk about inspiration. So what we've ended up doing, and that's the early church, straightforwardly, that's how, it, that's how we come to talk about an inspired book. What we've come to do is say, the book is inspired, however you read it. That's a very different statement. Yeah? And then we've got very different presuppositions for reading a book. So you know, we think the meaning lies in the book, and we've got to get the right reading strategy to get the right meaning of the author, and so on and so on, yeah? When, um, when Philip comes across the Ethiopian eunuch, what's he doing? Reading. He's reading Isaiah, yeah? And what does he say to Philip? He, he can't understand it. What can't he understand? It's yeah, it's not, I don't understand the meaning of the text. I don't know who it's talking about. The point of meaning is reference, not something within the text itself. Who's it talking about? Is, it talking about, is he talking about himself, Hezekiah, or who? Yeah? So that's where meaning is, and that's where inspiration lies. So when we're reading scripture as scripture, you're reading it cryptically, contemporaneously, harmoniously, and inspired. When you're reading it as historical documents that were written at different epochs and this, that, and the other, then you're reading as historical document. Okay? But remember the thing I said about veiling and veiling. You need both. Yeah? Um, so you can spend your whole time trying to figure out how the book of Exodus came to be composed and whatever, all of that. Yeah? The, the fact is that by the time of Christ, all these books were there. Okay? It's a given. However it came to be written, it's a given, and now we're in the dynamic of it being unveiled. The writings of the New Testament are somewhat different because the writings of the New Testament are, in a sense, much more immediately historical. Paul is writing to the Corinthians to correct a problem. But when we read him as scripture, as opposed to a historical document written to a historical community, we read him in the same way as scripture. It's contemporary. It's addressing us. Yeah? And all the things one can then want to say. 
Okay? So that's what it is to read Scripture. Now, we don't read the fathers of Scripture. Okay? We read them as historical witnesses to the faith in different epochs. Yeah? So uh, the temptation is to read them as if they were Scripture, and that's because we, 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 the language by about the 6th century goes from Scripture as inspired to the inspired fathers. And you start to place them in the same kind of category. Yeah? And then you start to harmonize them and flatten them out in the same way one might do with Moses and all the prophets talking about Christ. You harmonize them, you flatten them out. No, I would say you've got to read them as historical flesh and blood witnesses in a particular historical context in the best way you can do it. Yeah? And that requires incredible historical discipline. Yeah? You know, uh, we're, we're talking about communication, veiling and unveiling. Um, uh, arriving at understanding and meaning is a dialogical process between me and you. I'm saying something, I judge by your reaction whether you've understood me, and we go backwards and forwards, <laughs> we go backwards and forwards, and I might get corrected in the process, and what I've said, I might realize I've got to clarify, I didn't really mean it that way, I really meant this, well, you know. So it's a, it's a dialogical process. When you're dealing with a, with a father, you're dealing with somebody who's dead. Alive in heaven, poor Christ. Obviously, there's intercessions you can ask for and so on, but you're dealing with the text. And so it, it's a much more ascetic discipline to do that. You, you don't get a response. Yeah? So you always have to go back to the text. You always go back to the text. And after 20 years of going back to Irenaeus, I think I'm beginning to understand him. Yeah? And you're going back to these texts all the time, and in that, your own presuppositions are being laid bare and exposed for what they are. Now, it might be that they're better presuppositions than his. It might be that, you know, the way you're thinking is better than his. But as you learn to read and understand him on his own terms in this hermeneutic exchange between yourself and the text and all that's involved in that, your mind is opened up to see things differently. Yeah? And that's why I actually think that reading the fathers is a much more creative enterprise than doing systematic theology. When you're doing systematic theology, you're working within your own box. I'm not mentioning no names here, but you're working within your own box, as opposed to you're trying to understand somebody else who has a radically different way of looking at things. I mean, two millennia ago, you know, people from 100 years ago, we barely understand in the past is a strange country and all that kind of thing. So two millennia ago in Second Temple Judaism and all that kind of stuff, you're opening up different ways of looking at it which can open your mind to see things in different ways and that becomes a lot more liberating. Constructive, creative, life-giving, all the different things you can say. Yeah? But, the, but the task doesn't end there. Yeah? That the, the, the task of reading through the score of the earlier movement is so that you can sing your part today. I'm gonna, glad I recorded that because <laughs> I might use that with my students. Uh, maybe one more question. I wanna take one from this side of the room. The blue. same sort of historical rigor you're applying to to the earliest patristics you apply to Paul because it is a historical reference that you made to Paul yeah. um, and you read other Jewish writings in the apocalyptic tradition before and after Paul 
particularly those with plenipotentiary figures and redeemer figures, there isn't very much new no. um, in terms of the categories of how he thinks of salvation, so, destruction of the powers, yeah. resurrection. I mean, these are common templates that, right. Are, right. that don't really radically change, and he's using the same matrices of text. So yeah, ab absolutely. You repeat uh, absolutely. That, yeah, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a big question. That is a big <laughs> okay. question. Yeah. Um, the question was with regard to how differently is Paul reading? I'm paraphrasing, obviously. How differently is Paul reading scripture after his encounter in Christ when you compare him to the rest of late Second Temple Judaism, apocalyptic type figures, and so on? Yeah. So the, the, the best way I think one can understand it, and I'm borrowing an image here from Alexander Galitzin, is that that period really is like what he would describe as being a supersaturated solution. Yeah? Where you drop a crystal in and everything becomes clear. Yeah? So the passion of Christ is like dropping that crystal into the supersaturated solution. And everything becomes clear with that. Well, everything becomes clear, but that, that's, that, that's a crystallizing factor in all of this. So it's no longer what, I don't know, Enoch is doing or what Second Baruch is doing or whatever else. And even how those relate to Christian works is really not clear. You know, whether it's before or after, you know, really what are we talking about in all of this? Um, so the passion is a catalyst for that new reading, which is, although it's playing with all the imagery from Second Temple Judah, of course it is, it's configuring it in a particular way thereafter. Yeah? That's, that's how I would present it anyway. Okay? But uh, granted, in doing that, I'm treating Paul as a historical figure, which he is, and reading him as a historical figure, reflecting on his own past, how he was a Jew, righteous under the law, so on and so on and so on, then see things differently. Yeah. Well, let's thank Reverend John Bear. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.